Our scripture reading today comes from the book of John, chapter 13, verses 1 to 17, and 31b to 35. Hear these words. Now, before the festival of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, You don't know what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, You you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, One who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, he had put on his robe and had returned to the table. He said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example, that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I'm with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I have a friend, um, a friend that I grew up with, a friend that knows me before uh, I was a pastor. They were telling me about how um, they go uh, to church and uh, they bring their daughter with them. And at the church that they go to, there is a children's church. And so the little girl would go out at the time of the sermon and come back after the sermon. And this happened regularly. Now, my friend's parents came to visit. And at this time, the daughter, who's about four, stays in the service and actually experiences communion. And so 
having knelt in between her grandparents and returning back after having received the bread uh, and the juice, she leans over to her grandmother and says, I go to children's church. The snack is a lot better and they give you more juice. Tonight is about a meal, a simple meal. N.T. Wright, uh, Anglican bishop, New Testament scholar, says that when Jesus wanted to fully explain what it was that he was about, he invited people to a meal. It's powerful to think what happens around the table, that when we gather for a meal, we uh, relax, we settle in, we find ourselves joking and learning, and suddenly strangers become friends at the table. Tonight we remember and celebrate again this meal that defines us. Throughout the Gospels, we are told about Jesus' teaching and preaching. We watch as Jesus heals with miracles. We watch as he feeds the 5,000. We have front row seats to all of this. We follow Jesus into the city and out to the countryside. We are privy to his conversations among his disciples. We are hearing and overhearing as he prays to God. We see Jesus transfigured on the mountaintop. We watch as Jesus walks on the water and calls Peter out to him. And all along the way, we know what's coming. We are aware of how the story ends. Like an impatient person, we have turned to the last page of the book and read what happens in the end. Captain America grows old. Katniss lives. Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father. Stella gets her groove back. The Titanic sinks. Cinderella gets Prince Charming. And Scarlet vows to never go hungry again. We know how the story ends. But to really understand Monday Thursday, we have to suspend our disbelief and imagine ourselves in an upstairs rented banquet room, there with the disciples, unsure of what tomorrow brings. Now, they are gathered in this rented banquet room for Passover, the feast of Passover. Now, the feast of Passover was supposed to be held in a home with a family, but here they are in a rented upper room. And the holiday that they are celebrating is a strange mix of dynamics. To get Passover, you kind of have to take Thanksgiving and cross it with Texas independence. But this time, the soldiers in the Alamo win and the energy and emotion that they are consumed with is like New Year's Eve in New York City. That's a potent combination. 
Passover is the story of how Israel is rescued out of slavery to the Egyptians. That God himself leads them out by a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. That they escape through the parted waters of the Red Sea and they were saved by the hand of God. Some believe that the some believe that they are saved because the Egyptian army can go no further having mourned the loss of their own firstborn. You see, that's where Passover comes from. Passover comes from uh, the fact that God instructed the Israelites to eat a meal ready to go and to mark on the lintel, the crossbeam of their doors, um, a sign. And as the angel of death goes throughout the country of Egypt and kills the firstborn of every livestock, uh, every uh, family, every pet, um, the Israelites are passed over. That this was part of God's way of working to um, uh, soften Pharaoh's heart so that he would let God's people go. So as the disciples gather for a meal to remember how God rescued them from the Egyptians, it would not be surprising to find out that the disciples are wondering if God will rescue them from the oppression of the Roman Empire, that maybe this might be a moment for God to move. In the midst of Passover, Jesus says, there in that rented room, he takes bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. It's interesting, the language of the new covenant in my blood. Blood language here uh, is laden with multiple meanings. It, it is steeped in the old covenantal language of the Old Testament. Back to the time when uh, Abraham and God walked through um, um, a field of livestock animals that had been sawed in half as uh, Abraham and the representation of God went through and between these halves of animals, it was a way of saying that if you break this covenant, may what was done to these animals be done to you. This blood language. We hear that blood language and we think about being washed in the blood of Jesus, that our sins are washed away. I don't know about you, whether it's Shakespeare or somebody else, but there's just something about blood getting on you that doesn't wash away as easily as we think. When we think about um, a sacrifice that makes us clean, Jews understood the ritual. They understood that forgiveness and sanctification came from the temple. It came from the blood of a sacrificed animal. And that rescue of Passover 
comes not without a cost. It comes with the cost of the Egyptian army. It comes with the cost of wandering in the desert for 40 years. It comes with a cost. The new covenant in my blood. I become convinced over the 22 years of my ministry that God's ways are not our ways. That as often as we try to show that God is like us, the truth of the matter is that God is not like us. We're created in God's image, not the other way around. We keep trying to return the favor and remake God in our image. So oftentimes we think that the way to get something done is to act now and to ask questions later or to speak softly and carry a big stick or to, to demand that everyone look like us, act like us, or talk like us. But you and I both know that those ways of action are not God's ways. We think that the way to change the world is with force and power and being decisive. But God's ways are not our ways. N.T. Wright says that when God wanted to change the world, he didn't send tanks. He sent in the meek, the mourners, those who are hungry, hungry and thirsty for God's justice. He sent the peacemakers. When God wanted to change the world, he didn't do it our way with campaign ads and fundraisers. There was no person appointed as the change the world czar by God. God did not put the screws to us. God did not put us in timeout. When God wanted to change the world, he sent his son, fully human and fully divine, to invite us over for dinner. And after sharing a meal at the table, he got up and he took off his outer coat and he washed our feet like a common servant, like a, a house slave. And after serving us and washing our feet, he walked out into the night to be arrested to be paraded before the magistrates and eventually executed like a common criminal. In so many ways, this story changes the way redemption happens. But in so many ways, this story does not change the way redemption happens. It still takes blood, blood in and blood out. To think of our blood, which gives us oxygen, which allows for life to happen, but also blood being that which cleanses us and makes us free. That blood, which is uh, such a powerful metaphor for our own redemption. There's a story told about an event in 2008. A gang of terrorists stormed the Taj Mahal Palace in Mumbai, India. When the day was over, there was over 200 people dead, and a reporter was interviewing a guest who had been there at the hotel. He had been there for dinner, and though everyone at his table had died, he was a lone survivor. 
And so the journalist asked the guest, tell me how you survived. And the man said, um, he said, when I heard the shots, I was surprised. Someone grabbed me and pulled me under the table that as the terrorists went through, randomly shooting at will until everyone I thought had been killed. But there, there when it was over, when it was quiet, I got up. And the journalist asked, how did you survive? And he says, I suppose I was covered in someone else's blood. And they took me for dead. Rabbi Zacharias uses this story to illustrate the sufficiency of Christ's death for our sin. What a powerful way to describe our new life in the new covenant. I suppose I was saved because I was covered in someone else's blood. I suppose I was redeemed because someone sacrificed for me. God's ways are not our ways. We're blood in and blood out. And God is too. But God's version of blood in and blood out looks mighty differently than ours. Friends, we are not saved out of our own sheer will. We're not saved out of our busyness. We don't find faith and forgiveness because we are smart enough or rich enough or through some loophole. The gospel message is clear. In fact, we say it regularly in our uh, prayer of the great thanksgiving, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And having been covered in someone else's blood has made all the difference. And it starts with a meal. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.